Now at the Home Depot, save up to 35% off appliance special buys. Like the Samsung stainless steel side-by-side refrigerator, just $9.98. You save $300. It's big enough to hold 25 bags of groceries. Unload those, and if that makes you thirsty, you'll really love the external ice maker and water dispenser. Today is the day for doing. Spring Black Friday savings now at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. U.S. only while supplies last. See store for details valid through April 17th. Welcome to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. Today we're going to be talking about birth order, birth spacing, and parental favoritism, a really, really fascinating topic. This is probably one of my all-time favorite interviews, and I've been doing this show for a long time. So for, for me to have a favorite interview, that actually says quite a bit. I wanted to uh, have a message from uh, one of our underwriters, uh, Jockey Bing Family. They want their, uh, their call out to all adoption agencies. They're looking for adoption agencies who want to provide continued support to their families after adoption. The Jockey Bing Family Backpack Program provides a newly adopted child with their own backpack, customized with their initials and filled with an adorable little stuffed bear and a blanket, as well as some really great parenting resources, for obviously, for their parents. Let your agency know about this wonderful free resource. They can sign up at jockeybeingfamily.com. This show is brought to you by the support of our partners who believe in our mission of providing unbiased information to pre- and post-adoptive families. One such partner is Children's Connection. They are an adoption agency providing services for domestic infant adoption and embryo donation and adoption throughout the U.S., as well as home study and post-adoption support to families in Texas. And we have Children's House International. They are a nonprofit Hague-accredited international adoption agency with programs in 13 countries. They provide full services, including home studies in the states of Florida, Louisiana, Massachusetts, Texas, Utah, and Washington State. And, of course, they place children with any U.S.-approved family worldwide. Today we're going to be talking about birth order, birth spacing, and parental favoritism. Uh, Jeffrey Kluger is the author of a book called The Sibling Effect and What the Bonds Among Brothers and Sisters Reveal About Us. He's also uh, an editor and the science reporter at Time Magazine. He had an article in Time talking about parental favoritism. And as I read that article, I actually literally started arguing out loud <laughs> with the with the magazine. And and uh, and as a result, I immediately uh, uh, got on, contacted the uh, publisher, and, and asked to uh, um, to interview uh, Jeffrey Kluger. Um, this is we're on sabbatical, and uh, this is our last week on sabbatical, and uh, so we're bringing back uh, some of our uh, most popular and favorite shows. And this one qualifies as both. It is truly one of my favorites. Um, I just am absolutely fascinated by this topic, so I hope you are as well. Enjoy. Welcome, Jeffrey, to Creating a Family. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here. Well, 
Although, the, as the title of your book implies, the book covers much more than just favoritism. And we will talk about all those, probably even more fascinating topics later. But since it was the uh, favoritism article that was, uh, I think it was in September 16th, and I've included links, by the way, uh, on my blog this week uh, to that article. So those of you who are interested uh, in just that article itself, you can get that link. I believe it was a September 16th time. Um, uh, cover story. Anyway, um, so let's 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 talk about that since that's the one that got me all riled up. Um, as I said in my blog this week, I, I took exception to the idea that all parents have favorites. Of course, what as I was taking exception to that, the next line in the article I read said, "And all parents deny it," which of course <laughs> is really what got me going. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, but I'm denying it for a better reason. Well, <laughs> well look, true. even as the uh, as as the the point man for that idea, you know, even I say 95% of all parents have favorites, 5% lie about it, and the only exception is my wife and me. So believe me, <laughs> I am not immune from the lying part. But I I should dial that back some and say a couple of things. Um First of all, uh, the main study that we cite in the story, and there have been many, many of them, but the main study that puts numbers on this found that uh, 70% of fathers and 65% of mothers exhibit uh, a preference for one child over another. And the point that I make and the point the researchers make is that the key word there is exhibit. Um, the overwhelming majority of the remainder may simply be doing a better job of concealing it. Um, but how would too, we know? Well, I mean, if, if, if it's never out there, if, if, if how would you know that the other 35% have a problem? Well, you don't, and sometimes you don't know yourself. Um, but this is where this is where it gets grayer, and this is where it gets much more nuanced. Um, when we confuse uh, preferring and loving, preferring one, favoring one more than the others as compared to loving one more than the others. That's where we get into problems. Parents well, can and question. do love their children for the most part with equal ferocity and equal dedication, and they would run into a fire to rescue any child as quickly as they would run in to rescue any of the others. When we say favorites, when we say prefer, we mean, I mean, the researchers mean, Preferring the company of, getting a, having a greater connection with, uh, finding yourself more fulfilled by spending time with. All of these things um, are ways that we value all the relationships in our lives, the way that we define all the relationships in our lives. And we find it, we're okay doing that without assigning the word love to it, more love, less love. With our kids, we are so conscientious about exhibiting and feeling equal devotion to all of them that we don't ever let ourselves even tease apart that that larger idea. Um, and another point also in all of these things, uh, social sciences, psychological sciences, behavioral sciences are not chemistry and physics. There is no single hard empirical answer to anything. It's one of the things that, that uh, makes these kinds of fields so confounding. The only way to get data is to conduct studies after studies after studies, longitudinal meta-analyses, crunch all the numbers, keep adding to that, and slowly over time, very broad but very robust pictures emerge. That doesn't mean that any one case fits perfectly within those rules. 
Well, I mean, you make an interesting distinction and one that I wanted to raise, and it seems to me that we almost have to start with a definition of favoritism, which, which in fact, you just gave, which would mean it's not a love issue, it is a preferring issue. And and I am a big believer that it, kind of in the whole the, the 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 goodness of fit theory that there are, that that uh, in fact we just did uh, two weeks ago a show where we had um, uh, two of the top leading researchers on the whole nature versus nurture thing mm-hmm. on the show and we were talking about how much genetics influences who we are and how much our environment has is you know and, and trying to tease out those distinctions and and you know the, and and I think that. Pretty much science is pretty clear at this point that innate temperament is a genetic connection that that we are our, our children and ourselves as well uh, are born with an innate temperament and and without a doubt there are certain certain of our children will be an easier fit but it certainly seems to me that 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 ease of fit particularly when our children are say under the age of twenty one or whatever is is certainly in flux in that you know what a and one child may well be easy because of the age and developmental stage they're at and that same child may be hellfire on wheels when they hit 13 or 14 so the ease of fit shifts therefore the ease of of the relationship the one that is the easier one doesn't necessarily at all play out number one doesn't say the same number two wouldn't necessarily be the favorite well, that's right, and this is this is a point that I make in the story. I make a few points related to this in the story and in the book as well. Um, first of all, you're absolutely right that over the fullness of time, um, the ease of fit issue does change in adolescence. is a perfect example of it. Even when you have parents who concede favoritism, even when you have parents who almost embrace favoritism. And I did the Anderson Cooper show uh, a few weeks back, and there were two mothers on who were willing to go on network television and talk about their their acknowledged favoritism, uh, a preference of one child over another. Even in those situations, adolescence or other life challenges can sorely test that relationship. Um, but also, uh, psychologists who look into this talk about the idea of domains. And what that means is that there's no universal experience, no universal moment or context in which one child is always favored. The the example I, I, I like to cite is... Um, you know, maybe dad's an ex-jock and his son is a high school football player and he reminds him in every respect of himself when he was younger. And that's going to make that child very likely to be dad's favorite. On the other hand, if dad is also a reflective and somewhat intellectual sort and he just can't get his son to sit still to have a serious conversation, um, he may then be drawn to his more ruminative, more academic, more ironically inclined daughter who who gets his worldview um, when he needs that kind of connection. So, you know, you have these domains come up across childhoods and across families. Um, the only kids who really do wind up being hurt uh, in a significant way by favoritism is if they get all the way through their childhood and say, in no domain at any time was I either mom's or dad's favorite. And that's where you get problems. Are there certain kids, temperamentally, who are, for whatever reason, more likely to feel that 
to, to feel more intensely the lack or are they intensely the having to share the parental attention or the uh or feel more uh, uh, hypersensitive to the change that a sibling brings and and so those children are more likely to feel whether or not it is accurate or not mm-hmm. that they have been um, that they have been done in by or are <laughs> the, the poor receiving end of, of parental favoritism. Well, sure. And, uh, I mean, you bring up um, the idea of temperament, the idea that we are born with certain um, certain behavioral software encoded in us. Um, and, you know, there will be kids who will be more emotive, kids who will be more more uh, behaviorally and emotionally reactive than other kids. And you just pop from the womb with that operating system already booted up. Now life mm-hmm. can change that and modify it in a million different ways every day, but this is what you come from the womb with. Um, also, much more prosaically, uh, age simply makes a difference. A good cutoff point, and you and your listeners probably know this already, uh, but a good cutoff point for when you're less likely to see regression when a new child comes along, when behavioral regression, when you're less likely to see an older sibling uh, becoming ferociously jealous of a younger sibling. A good age cutoff is about four years old because it's at that point that a, I mean, we're not even talking about a toddler anymore. We're talking basically about a pre-K child. At that point, that child needs very, very different things from what a newborn needs. And in fact, the very doting, the very total immersion attention mom and dad give a newborn is what the uh, the the slightly older child is already beginning to chafe against. Four years old is when you first start getting a, a little stirrings of independence. You wander away a little bit from mom and dad. You don't need or want to be watched mm-hmm. every moment of every hour. Mm-hmm. Um, so the older they are, the the bigger the gap is, um, the less likely you are to find this. And frankly, as that four years opens up into five and six and seven years, um, you know, the, the the older child may become, you know, even a little aloe parent, him or herself. You know, they may they they're old enough now to, to understand why a newborn or a baby or a toddler is, is inexpressibly adorable and they may want to be part of that caretaking as well. Um do you see any pattern between which child is more likely to be chosen as the favorite or the preferred child. It seemed to me when reading the book that it was all over the board. Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, that's okay. Go ahead. Uh, Well, you're absolutely right. It is all over the board. Um, And yet one really interesting study uh, that I cite that is one of my favorites, actually, is that when you look at uh, which kids are likeliest to be the favorite, very often it's the youngest daughter who is dad's favorite and the oldest son who's mom's favorite um now this isn't you know 50 years 100 years ago there was this would have been all about oedipal impulses and that's been pretty much marginalized and and those that school of thought has been fairly well dismantled um and there you know there is a little something to the idea of to the stereotype of you know the little girl who has dad wrapped around her finger or the mother who just loves the uncomplicated love of an older son there's some of that going on but but for the most part what drives these cross gender preferences are paradoxically the traits that a parent sees in the opposite sex child that are more commonly found in their own child. 
So, you know, you see this in the, the businessman dad with a tough-as-nails daughter who's going after her MBA or the sensitive mom who just goes gooey over her son, the poet. Um, what you're seeing here is what I, what I like to call a kind of reproductive narcissism. Your opposite-sex children, I have two daughters, and those opposite-sex children can only ever resemble me so much. We're not even the same gender. But if they take the trouble to be like me, to behave like me, I'm going to respond reflexively with a special warmth and gratitude for that. And that, I think, is in part what drives this. Yeah, one, uh, as, as I mentioned in my blog, um, I work with the youth at our church, and I uh, raised this uh, over dinner with a group of middle school girls and the issue of, of favoritism. And I was certainly struck by how vehement the kids felt about this subject. Now, of the five uh, girls who were at the table, uh, three uh, immediately said, oh, absolutely, they're favorites in my family. Mm. Two, who were, two of those were um, in two-children family, and both of them said that there was a split, which you say is quite typical, where one parent favors one and one parent favors the other. Uh, of that, the three who found it, there was one, and the one who certainly seemed to be the most troubled by it was the eldest of three, and she felt very strongly that it was her, her younger sister who was favored. And yet the examples she were, was giving given uh, during the conversation seemed to me to be... The, the whole issue of, of, of younger children are are treated differently. And, and as much as we, as a mother of four, I would like to say that isn't the case. My children would tell you it most assuredly is the case. I think that they overstate that a bit. But nonetheless, there is no question that, that we are different parents to our right. youngest child. My kids are spread out over a 10-year period with four kids, and there's no question that I am a different parent now. I'm also in a different life situation now. You know, that's both, it plays out both good and bad, but right. there is no question. And at one point in the book, you said something that I liked very much and, and underlined it, that the family is not one environment. It's a shared series of micro-environments, and that's both, and it's also the environment that my first child was born into is quite a different environment than the environment the last child came into. And so I, it seems to me that some of this from the children's perspective, mm -hmm. uh, in fact, my own children, when I had the discussion with them, you know, tell me, you know, let's sit down and tell me if you think we have a favorite. When they eventually came around to it, they were saying, well, the younger one gets, this, you know, was able to do CPG-13 movies before she was 13. The, mm -hmm. they were, they were, she got a cell phone a year earlier than we got a cell phone. Things right. like that which doesn't seem to me to be favoritism. It seems to almost make the point that children are not particularly good at discerning favoritism in that sense. What they're discerning is, you know, uh, age rank status or, or birth order status. Right. Well, I mean, these things, you know, how the metrics by which favoritism uh, is measured, um, like so many other things, does change over time. And you're a very good example of a very common phenomenon, uh, which is that parents get quickly habituated to the things that once scared the daylights out of them when they're when mm -hmm. when uh they were raising only one child you know my, i'm happy so that i 
that I live in Manhattan because it means that you know I never have to worry about or rarely have to worry about my daughters going out and driving with people when they get old enough for that. Um, but I would imagine that if we lived in in the suburbs or almost anywhere else, the, when my older daughter first time she ever gets in a car and goes out driving for the evening with friends, I dare say I will not have a single calm instant until she got home. <laughs> with the second child we would all certainly be more inclined to be more relaxed about it. Um, and that happens straight down the line. Kids generally do get um, – later kids generally get uh, get uh, privileges and license to do certain things at a slightly younger age than every child before them. But the point you raised also about this micro-environments, which is, you know, it's sort of like local weather compared to climate – um, is a very good one. And one of the scientists I talked to in the book makes the point that no two children are born into the same family. When my older brother was born, right, I'm the second born, so my older brother was born into a household with two adults, period. I was born into a household with two adults and one child. My brother Gary was born into a uh, household with two adults and two kids. And my baby brother was born into a household with two adults and three kids. Each one of us had a different experience coming into into the home, and each one of us had a sequentially noisier, louder experience. Um, one of the other great numbers I like to cite, and this is in the book, I won't bore people with reciting the equation, but every family has many more people than you think are in, are in it, or more specifically, many more relationships. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that was... Right. Uh, that was, um, yeah, it was uh, It's at the very beginning of the book, and, and the right. number of relationships is truly exponential. It's astounding, yes. That. In a four-person family, there are actually six degree, discrete relationships. There's mom's relationship with child A and child B, dad's relationship with child A and child B, mom's and dad's relationship with each other, and the siblings' relationship with each other. Um, those Each of those pairings is called a dyad. In a five-person family, there are ten such dyads or relationships. In the eight-person Brady Bunch, there were 28 dyads. Um, the original so, and let's ten- just imagine what the Dugars would be. <laughs> well, exactly. They got twenty or, kids right. and the two adults. Oh my! Yeah. God. Well, if I if if I if I wasn't going to leave you with fifteen seconds of dead air, I would actually crunch the number for you and, and tell you what it is. But when in, in Bobby Kennedy's family, uh, there were two parents and eleven children. That was ninety-one dyads in that mm-hmm. house. Now, every one of those relationships is its own microclimate. Every one of those relationships has its own history, has its own drama, has its own temperamental clashes. So you stir all that together in a family. It's a wonder there's ever any peace at all. This, these are very complex parliaments in, in every household. Amen. <laughs> uh, one of the things you talked about, uh, and let me stop and say, I loved the book. It was, oh, uh, I, I thought it was extraordinarily well written, and I, I enjoy science. And I enjoy research, but often it can be dry. This was anything but dry, and you did a particularly good job, I thought, of of interweaving your family story. And I found that that, uh, even though I like science and read it anyway, the the tying in of your family story uh, kept me literally turning the pages and not wanting to put the book down. So that uh, was you know quite uh, quite good. You you talked about. 
the age-old preference of parents to have a male child, and you speak of it in, in evolutionary terms. You, you may not be aware of this. Our audience probably might be simply because they may have heard me say this. But in adoption, the vast majority, and I do mean it's quite vast, it's you know, over 80% of adoptive parents, if given a choice, would choose a girl. Um, so I'm interested in knowing if that what the research is currently showing as to, and the, the evolutionary part, just for everybody mm-hmm. to know, has to do with the fact that you know, a male can you know pr- spread his seed, so to speak, um, um, mm-hmm. although it's disturbing to think about when you think of our children, but nonetheless. Indeed. Um, it's, yeah. But it, they it, it, far and wide, whereas women are more likely to die in childbirth, and also there is, you know, um, Michelle Dugar to the to the contrary, there is a set number uh, that most uh, women will be able to have. But are are the scientists seeing that same preference for male? And this may have to divide up by. In fact, it would have to be divided by country. So let's just say in the United States, or has that changed? Uh, well, in the United States, I think it has softened some, and I think in in most parts of the industrialized world, it softened some. Um, in part because our, for for lack of a uh, a more scientific term, our consciousness has been raised a little bit about this, and also for for practical reasons. Um, you know, one of the reasons uh, parents prefer sons, sometimes consciously, sometimes not isn't just reproductive, it's also because sons are likelier to be able to earn a living, support the family, and support the parents when they get older. Well, now, daughters are equally likely, and if you if you look at the uh, at the uh, ratio of boy to girl in uh, in college enrollment mm-hmm. and in grad in graduate degrees, um, girls are actually now more likely simply because they're generally getting somewhat better educated than boys are. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you are right that you know what culture teaches us and the way culture changes us um, often can't usually can't keep up with what genetics and evolution make us do and genetics continue to drive us to prefer sons over daughters um, it's not a surprise uh, for the very reason you talk about um, you know there are what was it Genghis Khan had I cite in the book um, I forget oh, how many number. thousands of children he had but but some amazing figure um when you when you track the um the x chromosome or the actually the mitochondrial chromosome down through uh the centuries there are 24 some 24 million people males uh in the in asia who can trace their lineage to genghis khan well that's yeah, i mean he's nature's jackpot that's what nature wants you to do um obviously in the case of adoption you know though for all in all other ways um, adoptive children are, are as much a full part of the family as as uh, natural children or as biological children are. Um, there is not that genetic component. So parents can choose to adopt for different reasons. And I think one of the things that parents like, parents prefer about daughters, is that they tend to be easier, at least until adolescence, um, they tend to be more open and more emotive. You know, when I, I tell my daughters, and I mean this, um, that you know, I was obviously in the delivery room when both of those were born. I was ecstatic when when my first child was a daughter, and when my second child emerged and they flipped her around so I could see her sex, the first thing I said was another girl. I, I exclaimed it happily. That's just what I wanted, just because I like that accessibility, that openness that girls tend to exhibit uh, more easily and readily than boys do. 
I think there's also, quite frankly, a fear. I think women tend to have a fear of raising sons. I think there's the, you know, there something of a myth that that boys are inherently a, a lot uh, harder. And I, I, I actually don't think that that's true. I'm, I'm the mother of two girls and two boys. Uh, I think it has a lot more to do with. Uh, there's a lot more distinctions within the gender than there are between genders. But that's right. neither, nevertheless. So anyway, yeah. I, I think that. Let's talk a little bit about the about birth order and birth order stereotypes. How persuasive do you think the birth order stereotypes are? I think the birth order stereotypes are are quite persuasive. Now, there's a whole school of scientists that argue with the methodology and question some of the findings, and we can get into that a, a little bit later. But again and again, this does seem to be one of those areas in which lay people came to this before the scientists did. Lay people were had long been able to say, you know, there does seem to be a pattern with birth order, that the firstborn will be more studious, will be more serious, will be more driven and ambitious, will be more traditional and conservative and more invested in the family structure. The lastborn will tend to be rebellious, will tend to be the iconoclast, will tend to be the one who's more charming, more disarming, who tends to be funnier. I mean, there's a there's a long history of comedians and satirists who are the last born or one of the last in their family. And middleborns sadly do seem to spend a whole lot of their life in the equivalent of a middle seat on a transatlantic flight. Um, they do have more trouble getting recognized in the home. They do have to struggle harder to find a direction in life. They do, do tend to be at somewhat higher risk for self-esteem issues as they as they grow up. The one advantage for middleborns is that they also seem to be better able to to develop broader and denser uh, social networks outside the home. But in some respects, that's an advantage born of a disadvantage because their needs just weren't getting as as well served in the home. Is uh, does birth order stereotypes hold true more for when there is no difference in gender? You were one of four boys. You were the second of four boys. Uh, and but if there is a if if there are uh, different genders, mm-hmm. um, how does that play out? Uh, there was, uh, funnily, the the investigators speak of this without a whole lot of data. I looked into that um, closely, and most of them were willing to say yes, that will make a difference. Uh, it makes sense that that would make a difference. But a lot of them also said, but it's funny, I haven't conducted the studies and I haven't seen people who do. But anecdotally, at least, um, the, the the scientists believe and the, you know, the, the casual studies that have been done show that um, things are a little easier for a middle-born if the configuration in the family is boy-girl-boy or girl-boy-girl because everybody is unique in one way or another. You know, the old one is the firstborn, mm-hmm. the you know, the heir apparent. The younger one is the is the baby prince or princess, and everybody's adored little caboose, and the middle child is the only representative of that gender in the family. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a situation unique to uh, three-child families, obviously, mm-hmm. um, because in two, there is no middle, and, you know, once you get to four and above, there are multiple middles. Um, and again, that was the situation I was in. Um one of the things that made it easier for me, harder in some respects, but easier for me in terms of birth order, was that my older brother left home to go to prep school uh, when I was 12. Um, and I was still young enough to be pretty temperamentally malleable. Um, and I became what's 
what's referred to as the functional firstborn. I ascended to office when he wasn't available to fill the responsibilities. And that happens more than we think it does in a lot of homes because it's not just when kids leave. It's when kids are sick, when they're temperamentally ill-equipped to be the um, – to be the oldest when they have other emotional issues that you know that may distract them from fulfilling their their family legacy, um, and secondborns or, or even younger can then rise up to be to be firstborns. And also remember, as with favoritism, there are certain domains in which uh, a secondborn may step up and take over. Um, you know, this may sound uh, like a gender stereotype, but it's a gender stereotype that applies. And that is when it comes to caretaking responsibilities, like remembering that it's mom's birthday coming up and all the kids should, should write a card or remember being the one to keep the family photo album or, or the scrapbook. It's, it's generally uh, a sister who will do that, um, or at least more likely than, than a brother. And if the sister is the second born, when it comes to those responsibilities, she generally will supplant the, the brother, at least in those chores. Well, yeah. In that case, she would be the eldest daughter and would be stepping into, right. into that role. Yeah. Um, one of the things that can and does happen in adoption is that the birth order can be disrupted mm-hmm. by the uh, adoption of a sibling group or an older child or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a number of resources uh, on exactly that, um, what happens when birth order is, is disrupted. And I realize this is beyond the scope of yeah. of your book for certain, but in having looked through the research, which you certainly have, have done exhaustively, mm-hmm. um what what um can you can you uh, generalize from the research to, well, to say what disrupting birth order might do? Yeah, I can I can draw some generalities and you're right. This is I, I will confess this is an issue that never occurred to me what happens when the you know the newest child in the home um, who is in all, almost all situations typically the youngest, turns out not to be the youngest. That's a very mm-hmm. good question. Um, the best analogy to that, and it's a an imperfect one to be sure, is in the case of blended families, when birth order sequences get disrupted, um, when you know the oldest suddenly becomes the second oldest or even the mm-hmm. third oldest, and the mm-hmm. youngest who loves that baby, king, baby prince position becomes the third youngest. Um, this happened in my family during my, my mother's brief second marriage, and that was only four of us and two sisters, but the birth orders did get disrupted a bit. Um, Frank Sullaway, who is a researcher at UCAL Berkeley and is considered um, the, the great wise man on birth order issues, says, he says, even I won't touch it when when you're dealing with blended families. It just blows everything up. Just all of the rules get shattered. So I wouldn't be surprised um, if that's also the case in adoptive families, that it gives you a chance to hit reset. It gives you a chance to shuffle things. Now, again, every situation is different, and different, and the exact age difference makes plays a big role too. If you know, if the newest born, if the newest arrival is six months older, that's very different from the newest arrival being four years older than. Next oldest child. Um, it's also it also depends on what developmental stages each child is in because you know it isn't just what the calendar says. It's also mm-hmm. where you are are on your maturation arc, which um, is actually a huge issue uh, in adoption because very often the children who are um, being adopted into the family are developmentally younger than their age would indicate, sure. and it becomes complicated. I mean, because children in hard places often are spending time. 
uh, come, who come from hard places are spending time uh, in survival and not necessarily uh, right. have had the opportunity to develop uh, on the typical trajectory. Sure. But uh, anyway, so yeah, it is. It is a fascinating. Uh, uh, and for people who are listening, we've got probably the, the most resources out there, um, although I will admit that we have been able to find very little research. Um, so most of what we have out there is is from uh, the experts, which are called parents. Uh, and I was uh, very thankful that you did uh, some talking in the book about the importance, usually anyway, of not splitting up siblings for a Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah, and that, that is – I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. That's happening. It happens very little here in the United States, but it is certainly, through international adoption, still not an uncommon practice at all. Right. Exactly. And there was a uh, there was a best practices guidebook drafted not long ago for the EU um, that you know it was as with so many things with the EU, it wasn't mandatory that these countries adopt it, but it was strongly, strongly recommended. And one of the points that was made again and again was that there are a thousand different variables that can affect the uh, the outcome of any child in foster care or later adoption, but one of the most powerful ones, um, again and again, proved to be keeping siblings together whenever possible. I, I mm-hmm. mean, remember, depending upon the circumstances of of the uh, the way the child, children become orphans or the way they become put up for adoption, um, it's their whole world may have been suddenly exploded by some, you know, political event, by some local war, mm-hmm. by an accident, by any one of a thousand things, by a bankruptcy, by the arrest of a parent, anything at all. All of these things are terrible and traumatic and and um, tectonic in the in- impact they can have on kids. And if you then wrench their traveling companions away from them, if you wrench their sidekicks away from them, you just you exacerbate that wound many times over it's it's critically important to keep kids together whenever possible and you're right in the US this is being done less and less but um in parts of the world in which um there really isn't a whole lot of interest or concern about that or in parts of the world in any desperate situation in which there just is no love that people simply don't have the luxury to to attend mm-hmm. these kinds of things and you would again see that in cases of war or natural disaster especially um, you know, this that gets lost, and you know the only issue becomes finding a place to you know get a roof over these kids' heads and get some food into them three times a day. And, and this is particularly relevant when children have an established relationship, as opposed to uh, oftentimes where uh, where there is no relationship. The children right. child is, is relinquished at birth or whatever, and there's no relationship. Right. Now you have two siblings that uh, are half siblings. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was curious, do you have a relationship that, I'm sorry, I should, didn't finish that thought, of whom you did not know at all right. um, until you were all adults? Um, and uh, do you have any relationship with them now? Oh, yeah, absolutely, indeed. I'm uh, tomorrow morning, 10 a.m., going out to Palo Alto to, well, speak at a book event out there that my sister arranged, my half-sister, um, but also to spend time with her and her husband and, and my two wonderful nephews out there. And, uh, you know, people have said to me, I've done um, had a lot of conversations and a fair number of, of terrific interviews um, since this book has come out, and a very common question is, did anything surprise you? What, or what surprised you most from your research? Um, and what surprised me most from my research, and much more uh, 
profoundly from my personal life was the way circumstance and dedication to the sibling ideal um, can trump blood. My half-siblings and I, all of us, um, had to overcome so many obstacles to be simply cordial. They did not know uh, my my full brothers and I even existed until they were in their mid teens and I was in my we were in our mid twenties and we didn't even meet. Well, I met them once when they were infants and once when they were toddlers, but obviously they had no recollection of that. But we didn't even meet as lucid, sentient people um, until I was in my early thirties and they were in their early twenties. There was family hostility. There were some issues that even came up between us after our mutual father died and a grandmother died and there were, you know, the standard ugly uh, bequest issues. And that came early in our relationship. We had so much to overcome. And yet, here we are, 20-some years after we met, and the intimacy and the warmth and the love I feel for them amazes me every time I think about it. I had never imagined that we would come so close to having full sibling intimacy and full sibling relationships. And, uh, you know, even without the history that my full brothers and I share, I find that this has, they become richer and more meaningful, these relationships, to me every day. How often this this closeness that you, that, uh, and I think you're right that our society does idealize it, how uh, of, of, and this may be an unfair question because I'm not sure exactly how this would ever be measured, but of adult siblings, um, there are certainly some who never get over their the sibling rivalry, uh, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, sibling rivalry, but uh, who never get over that feeling of 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 and, and, and antagonism towards the other one, and they remain unclose. Um, if not, in, usually the antagonism goes away because they simply just live totally separate lives. How right. often does that happen, or is that really the the by far the exception? Uh, it it well, these things follow um, something of a uh, of a uh, like so many other things, a bell curve. Um, and one of the studies, which is a somewhat old study, but one that um, that comes up again and again uh, simply because its findings are so robust, um, divided all relationships into, and I always forget the name of the categories, intimate, close, um, cordial, loyal, and hostile, or something like that. And this hostile and intimate are obviously the... um, Extreme. The uh, you know the extremes and they're the, 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 of that the easiest group. right and they're the easiest one to understand. One one above hostile is those siblings who will tolerate each other at weddings but don't even want to do that. Um, and then you sort of go march up to the the, the happier categories. And these things tend to follow that bell curve uh, that bell curve pattern. And the 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 numbers tend to follow what you would expect in a bell curve, which is ten to fifteen percent at either end. Um, you know, 20 or more as you move in, and this big mass in the middle of 40 or 45%. Um, What I like to say is that, look, I'm not naive. Obviously, some sibling relationships are so grievously pathologically fractured that they just need to be walked away from. It's just in everybody's interest. And, you know, even the sibling idealists like myself would say one of the good things about that is that it's easy to divorce a sibling. You just quit picking up the phone. You just resolve never to bother each other anymore. Um, it's a whole lot harder to, to terminate a marriage, say. Um, but 
almost all of the people I've spoken to, and certainly my personal experiences, which are, you know, that's anecdotal, but still deeply felt, suggest that bad relationships can be made better, good relationships can be made better still. And, you know, it's always possible to move up a category, I think, just by caring enough to do it and making the investment in time that it requires to do it. Are there characteristics of families or of children within families that could predict which ones will have the the greatest amount of sibling rivalry? Well, um, that's a really good question. Um, I think a whole lot of that, again, let's put aside for a moment that, you know, the, the the operating system we come from birth with. Um, I think a lot of that uh, is, is can be laid at the feet of the parents. Um, the more parents make an effort to uh, celebrate all of the accomplishments of their kids and and correct all of the strain or the deficiencies or, or, or be areas that are lacking in their kids, the more they approach each child with an even hand, with even validation, with equivalent attention, the, the less likely they are to foster sibling rivalry. Um, you know, the Kennedy family may have produced two senators and one president, but that household was was a loony bin in terms of um, the competitiveness Joe Kennedy Sr. set up. Uh, you know, there was a reason that Joe Kennedy Jr. took on so dangerous a mission, a mission that ultimately cost him his life, and that was because his father drove them all to be the best, be the best, be the best. This is in World War II that he did that. There's a reason that John Kennedy, who later became president, engaged in a bicycle race around the house with his brother, colliding with him at the end and having to have 20, 28 stitches uh, as a result of the injury he sustained. And that was because he had to compete with his brother, Joe Kennedy Sr., um, when their kids lost to each other at sports. The losers had to eat in the kitchen with the help, and the winners got to eat at the dinner table with the family. That is not a healthy situation which can be brought up. Now, few of us are Joe Kennedy Sr., but a whole lot of parents um, need to take care to make sure that kids don't feel like there there is too finite a limit on the amount of te- attention they have to give, which means that the only way the parents can get, the kids can get their share of attention is by snatching it back from their, their brothers and sisters. Have researchers or psychologists come up with what they consider the ideal spacing between children? Uh, and if so, how would they determine ideal? You've mentioned earlier that right. as far as regressive behavior, mm-hmm. um, you see less of that when there's a four-year split. And obviously, if you have a 10-year split, you would see probably very little of that. Right. And, and yet, I, you can argue that perhaps 10 years, then you really have very little of a sibling relationship. Exactly. Yeah, uh, and we I cite some folks in the book whom we know, just friends of my daughter, who is uh, the... the uh, the little girl is 10 years old and the brothers are 24 and 26. Well, this is much more of an, of an uncle-niece relationship at that point right. than it is a brother-sister yeah. relationship. They shared their childhood, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, and that's not to say that's not ideal because I think ideal is in the eye of the uh, Right, older, exactly. But, sure. But well, uh, I, what are psychologists, and, and, and in particular, uh, how does that play out in the terms of sibling rivalry? Well, in terms of sibling rivalry, the closer you are, the worse it's going to be. Um, 
simply because your needs are so similar, the kinds of attention you need are so similar. Um, you know, your interests can drive sibling rivalry. You know, this is we we get it's where we get into the idea of de-identification. Uh, it's what drives a lot of kids to look at what their older brother or sister is doing and then do the opposite. This isn't a, you know a function of trying to reject that older brother or sister. Far from it. It's often a case of saying, "Gee, he or she is, exceed, is succeeding so well uh, in mom's and dad's eyes because he's a I don't know college football player. She's a college or high school soccer player. Yeah, probably um, even probably I, more of the you know a pee wee football player because I think right, exactly. Are, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Pee wee or a yeah or a pee wee soccer player. I could do that too and get at most fifty percent of that attention. Or I can become an artist. I can run for student council president and get 100% of the attention in that area. So this is a big variable there. Um, also, though, the the closer you have kids in age, um, the more they're going to fight, yes, and the more they're going to compete for mom and dad's attention, yes. But the closer their partnership will be throughout those critical uh, developmental years because their needs are the same, because they tend to be experiencing things in the same way. Two years may be, you know, it may, when you're in third grade and your big brother or sister is in fifth grade, that feels like a huge, huge gap, but you're going to the same school. You're riding the same bus. You know the same teachers. A teacher you have as a three-year, as as a third grader, very likely has not left the school yet, and has your older has your your had your sister when she was a when she was a third grader. So they have a lot of common experiences, and this is what what drives them closer over the fullness of their childhood. Well, and you're you're. You and your siblings were extraordinarily close in age. What the whole split between four of you was what four years? Four and a half years from oldest to youngest. Yeah, I like to say I I write in the book about how my mother battled prescription drug abuse most of her life, and you know friends of ours always say, well she had four sons, four and a half year old years older, younger when she was twenty five, who wouldn't become a drug addict under those circumstances? <laughs> and she jokes about that herself. She goes, why do you think I took so many pills? So, you know, it was not an easy household for her to live in either. And she was a single parent, so it was it was brutally tough for her. But the upside of that is that my brothers and I have become so close and have remained so close. And I feel like without getting a little too treacly here, I feel like that's a gift we're giving our kids because our closeness fosters closeness among all the cousins. You know, uh, you grow up in a in a home in which there's armed camps between the siblings. The cousins learn to detest each other too. Um, you grow up in a home in which all the siblings love each other, and you have you know as many family events as possible. And even when you don't, you're always speaking highly of each other, and you're always encouraging those connections among the cousins. I mean, that's that's what builds very sturdy, very robust, and very lasting extended families. Particularly if you all have children in a similar age range as well, so that there's not 15, 20 years difference, age difference between the cousins. That's as well. right, and that's another respect in which we're my brothers and I are lucky because the biggest gap, I guess, is um, well, it's, it still seems a little big. Uh, it's about um, uh, eight years uh, between. Yeah. The oldest cousin and the youngest cousin, sixteen down to eight, but still, they're you know, it's pretty. Yeah, that, which is not, yeah, that's not a great uh, split yeah. at all, really, in the scheme of things. Um, it, as I uh, mentioned earlier to you, our, our audience uh, is both uh, those interested in adoption as well as those 
who are uh, parents through or in the middle of trying infertility treatment or parents mm-hmm. through infertility treatment. So we have a large number of people who have twins, uh, mm-hmm. for better or for worse. And, and one of the things that we are strongly encouraging is uh, that uh, multiple births are not uh, should not be considered the successful treatment of infertility. We're, uh, we believe that uh, singleton births are, are should be the gold standard. However, nonetheless, um, many, many, um, that's a hard sell. Many people who have been infertile um, would desperately love to have twins, get it over, sure. get it over with. Just, just give me a kid, give right. me two kids, so I can, you know, not have to go through treatment any, any, uh, and, and and I have a guarantee that I'm going to have two. Right. So, for whatever reason, we have a large number of twins. How do? Uh, what is some of the interesting research that something? Tell us something interesting about twin research, research on twins. Well, this is uh, it's one more area in which I have a bit of a personal investment because my half-siblings are fraternal twins um, in the era before uh, fertility treatment. And you know, so we just got lucky and had that wrinkle in our, our relationships as well. Um, well, the biggest, obviously, the biggest, uh, the, the most interesting phenomena concern identical twins because um, – they are exactly the same in terms of a, in terms of behavioral software, and as a result, you know you do have a lot of these eerie similarities when you hear separated at birth studies of you know mm-hmm. twins who never met each other, and yet you know they both wind up as firemen, and they both like certain kinds of jokes, and they both both go to certain places for mm-hmm. for vacations. There was one study I read about two sisters who both. Uh, wound up being uh, writing in journals. Now that's not that that uncommon, but later in life when they met and they compared their journals, they very often wrote at the same time of the month and on very similar days in the month and wrote about similar things. Well, all of this seems like some paranormal connection. Really, what's going on is um, you're if if you're born with a a, a a a personality that by nature is risk seeking, you're likelier to become a fireman than you are to become, say, an academic. Um, if you're born with a, a personality that's that's reflective, you're likelier to to engage in journal writing, and particularly for females whose moods are a little bit more trackable to the month than than men are, you're likely at certain times of the month to feel more inclined to write in a journal than you are at other times. So, you know, these these things do have explanations um, among uh, among fraternal twins who are no more alike biologically than any other siblings are, um, they're still, I mean, you think growing up in the same nursery when one, one child is a newborn and the other one is 18 months old, you think that makes you similar. Imagine never knowing existence, including the time you were in the womb, without having that child right up next to you. Mm-hmm. So every single stage you go through in life is marched through in lockstep with your half-sibling, and it doesn't even matter much if that half-sibling is opposite gender. When I talk to my half-brother and half-sister, particularly my brother says, look, my wife and my own child are obviously the center of my life right now, but there is and will never be somebody who is as similar to me, as much of a soulmate in that primal sense as my sister Allison is. That is what they grow up with. There are also some funny things about um, uh, about biological differences that happen. Even with two placentas, you often get um, a little cross placental uh commingling uh chemical commingling and as a result you can find subtle masculinization of of females in not so much in terms of uh sexual orientation but in very very subtle things like there's something called autoacoustical emissions the um 
the uh, structure of the inner ear, um, and it can be slightly masculinized in fraternal girls and girls and fraternal twins, and also girls who are fraternal twins um, tend to have a risk of uh, respiratory illnesses um, when they're babies. That's much more similar to boys. Um, boys tend to have a higher risk of that. So this may be a little more in the weeds than you want it to be, but they're all kinds no, of uh, they're all kinds of interesting overlaps. No, there. but what about the reverse? The uh, male uh, having the influence on the male twin, if we're talking about a male-female twin. There's been any... uh, there's been less research on that, um, and I did ask about that, uh, and for whatever reason, I mean, when you look at, uh, what, there's a section in my book when I, uh, I look at sexual orientation, and as with so many things, this skews toward one gender or the other, and there's been a lot more study for whatever reason of, of male homosexuality than of female, and similarly, for whatever reason, there's been uh, a little more study of the way um, boy fetuses uh, influence their sisters than the way girl fetuses influence their brothers. But one of the researchers I spoke to said, look, when those studies are done, I have absolutely no doubt that they'll find the the same thing, that they'll be, you know, sort of cross-influenced because why shouldn't there be? Sure. I mean, there's a in the bath that we are all swimming in Mm -hmm. that that, there there would be hormones. That's a very good image, and that's exactly what it is. What are some of the other uh, – I enjoyed reading the part uh, about how uh, having a sibling of a different gender affects affects you so as as a woman having had having a having had a having had a brother or a mm-hmm. a, a, a man having had a, growing up with a sister how how does that play out um, as far as how, what are some of the, the stereotypes that are accurate, right. at least supportive? Well, that's, I mean, that was uh, that was a lot of fun to read about and report because, um, you know, the stereotype is always that college girls can say, oh, I can always tell a guy who grew up with a sister, and college boys can always say, I can always tell a girl who grew up with a brother. And that turns out to be true in studies in which you pair off uh, – these are often college students because that's where you get the volunteers. But when you pair off volunteers and boy-girl pairs, they don't know each other, and you get them talking as if they're on a five- or ten-minute speed date. At the end of the conversations, when they rank how the, when they rate how the conversation went, boys with, brother, with sisters typically rank significantly higher than boys without and vice versa, girls who had brothers. And for just the reasons you would think, boys yeah. who, who had sisters – tend to have that rarest of commodities on the dating market. They ask questions about what's on the girl's mind instead of which, what's, what's, uh, what he wants to talk about. They make more eye contact. They're more responsive when girls talk. Uh, the girls who had brothers tend to have somewhat uh, more irreverent senses of humor, which especially college boys love. They tend to initiate conversation more. They tend to be a little more flirty, which is a function of being a little more confident and a little more aggressive. And these are the kinds of things boys love. All of this is a result not only of the fact that you grew up in that, in you, you know, you talk about a hormone bath. Well, you grow up in a behavioral bath with a member of the opposite sex um, and a close to a same age member of the opposite sex. Also, remember... The opposite gender world is closed off to us almost quite literally for a whole significant sections of your childhood. In, in pre-K and nursery and kindergarten, there's really little regard to gender except boys tend to be you know, little hellions and girls aren't. So sometimes the girls you know, don't want to get any near, anywhere near the boys when they're brawling. But apart from that, there's no real rejection of the other sex. Well, by the time kids become six 
and are in first grade, those gender circles do begin closing and girls sort of wall off the boys and boys wall off the girls. And all of this maturation within the girls group and within the boys group goes on outside of your sight and outside of your experience. And suddenly six or seven years later, here they emerge, girls in the full flower of puberty, boys in the full flower of their puberty. And you think, what the heck happened in that cocoon for seven years? Well, in the home, when you have that opposite gender person living with you, particularly if you're close in age, it's your emissary to that mysterious world. You learn so much about how to turn the tumblers of the opposite sex's mind when you have a, when you have a, an opposite sex sibling growing up with you. I, I think that is. Uh, I grew up in a family of all girls, mm-hmm. and I have uh, uh, just one sister, but nonetheless, we were just two girls. And I have two girls, and I am raising two girls and two boys, and I am constantly amazed and and also pleased in a sense. There is something that I think that the opposite, growing up with um, uh, the opposite gender, uh, really uh, does affect it. I, I certainly there's a, there's a broadiness of the humor. Mm-hmm. There's an ability to take and give teasing. Exactly. Uh, exactly. That, that simply, yeah. I think with. And it, it, that, it, that wouldn't have to necessarily be the case. A father could introduce that into an mm-hmm. all-girl family. Yeah. But I think it happens less, and there's, you know, there's certain things. And I think that certainly, I, I don't know 100%, but, but I suspect that when the boy is the second or has an older sister, mm-hmm. that he is probably even more influenced because – she is the one that he is, you know, trying to court favor to, and is exactly. he is learning to, to communicate or, or whatever. Well, we have come to the end of our time. Thank you so much, uh, Jeffrey Kluger, for being our guest today. Let me recommend the book. I think everyone, it, this is just a, simply a great book, The Sibling Effect: What the Bonds Among Brothers and Sisters Reveal About Us. Obviously, you can get it online, but better yet, go to your local bookstore, and uh, they will absolutely have it and get it there. This show will be archived on the 2011 Big List at the radio page of creatingafamily.org. It's also available for a download as a podcast from iTunes. To stay in touch with the latest developments in adoption and infertility, as well as receiving the upcoming week's blog and show topic, please sign up for our weekly newsletter at creatingafamily.org. Next week's show, December 7th, is going to be our annual show on the adoption tax credit. There is a lot happening on this credit. We are getting so many questions almost daily at this point. So please save your questions, send them in. We've got a great panel of experts to talk about that. Thanks for joining us today, and I will see you next week. This February, history will be made. Millions will watch as 80 years of unjust stigma is left in the past. A product that drove good people to the black market will be revealed as one that's creating a new global market. This February, what inspired the symbol of counterculture will at long last be seen as just culture. The new normal is coming. Will you be one of the first to see it? Visit MedMen.com to watch an exclusive preview. Right now at the Home Depot, you'll save up to 35% off appliance special buys, like a GE Appliance's top-load washer and dryer pair with deep clean and deep rinse options, a reliable heavy-duty agitator, and four precise water levels, just $4.78 each. Wash, dry, save, repeat. Today is the day for doing with Spring Black Friday Savings now at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. 
U.S. only while supplies last. Gas dry extra. See store for details. Valid through April 17th.